Welcome to The Trip Lab, kitchen table conversations about integrative medicine and psychedelics. I'm your host and resident physician, Dr. Mariella Wood. Welcome back. This episode is going to be all about MDMA, which is known as Molly or ecstasy. We'll talk about how MDMA works, what the latest data is showing us, and how it is being used to treat PTSD and potentially other psychiatric disorders as well. As the podcast grows, I hope to hone in on the format and adjust it each episode to what you guys might want. And I thought starting off with a little news would be really pertinent and to help keep you guys up to date with what's happening in real time. And this episode is actually the perfect one to start with that because we do have some new news on MDMA. The Journal of Psychiatric Research published the results of their analysis on eating behaviors for their phase three study of MDMA to treat PTSD. Studies have recently been published proving how well MDMA works to treat PTSD, which is what this episode's going to be about. But another piece of this is eating disorders. Many people who have PTSD also have eating disorders. So this paper looked at how MDMA might affect these people in addition to treating their PTSD. And they found that the MDMA therapy significantly reduced their eating disorder symptoms. So this is just the start. We're starting to study more than just PTSD. Very exciting times. Next, another recent study was published from researchers at McGill University, MIT, and Sunny Downstate that is proposing a way that we can actually use psychedelics and machine learning to essentially map the mind. They were working to find out what parts of the brain and what neural circuits produce specific experiences and emotions. This study specifically is a pretty subjective study, but the idea is interesting and warrants further studies. Now on with our episode. MDMA, which is short for 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine, is a synthetic empathogen that is also known as molly or ecstasy. I will note it does have the word methamphetamine in the name, but it is not methamphetamine. It's methylene dioxy methamphetamine, which is very different than methamphetamine, and it is not related to methamphetamine, which people know as crystal meth. So MDMA is considered a psychedelic-like compound and is currently on its way to be FDA-approved to treat PTSD during therapy sessions. This molecule was first synthesized and patented by Merck in 1912. Nothing really came about from it at that time until it was in a way, rediscovered by chemist Alexander Shulgin in 1976. This was after LSD was banned. So since LSD was no longer able to be used legally by psychiatrists and psychotherapists, they began to experiment with other drugs, and MDMA was one of them. In the 70s and the 80s, it was primarily used in couples therapy, and when we talk about how the drug works, you will definitely see why. When LSD was made a Schedule One drug, which again means no medical benefit and high potential for abuse. Definitely check out my last episode if you want more information on this. But essentially after that happened, efforts were made to protect other similar compounds from the same scrutiny. So MDMA wasn't highly publicized for this reason. In the 70s and 80s, it was called Adam, in efforts to keep it a little bit more on the down low. And during that time, MIT was actually the place that produced the vast majority of MDMA that was used in therapy sessions. This meant that you could be sure the MDMA was pure, and a lot safer than the illegal party drug known as molly or ecstasy that is around now, 
which unfortunately is often laced with other harmful substances. So it's not the MDMA itself that's harmful, which we will definitely get into, but most of the time it's the stuff that it's laced with that causes all of the bad reactions. But back to the 80s, unfortunately, the legality, even for use in therapy, did not last long. In 1985, it was also made a Schedule One drug because of its use recreationally. They actually had no idea that it was being used therapeutically when they made it a Schedule One drug. We can definitely do a whole episode on the war on drugs and why these drugs are banned, and why it is actually causing more harm than good in many different aspects. If you're interested in all this, there is a great Netflix show which really breaks down the impact of this war on drugs on vulnerable populations from around the world. It's called The Business of Drugs, and I'll definitely link it in the show notes. But something that I think sums it up in an interesting way is a recent quote that I came across by Terrence McKenna. He said, Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong. I think that sums it up perfectly, and it's a really fascinating way of describing what psychedelics can do. So what are the effects of MDMA compared to the classic psychedelics like LSD and magic mushrooms? Well, to start, MDMA is a lot shorter acting and doesn't produce as profound changes in consciousness. But the effects still are very interesting and unique to that molecule. It essentially enhances all visual and auditory perceptions, meaning that colors will be brighter, sounds and music will be more beautiful, and there might be mild visual distortions and a slight altered sense of time perception. People also report a subjective increased sociability, extroversion, friendliness, and a feeling of closeness to others. With that, let's break down the neuroscience. Why does this molecule cause all of those things to happen? So MDMA works in a couple different ways. First, it works partly as an MAO inhibitor. MAO stands for monoamine oxidase inhibitor. For those of you in medicine, you might recall that the pure MAO inhibitor medications like selegiline, which is known as MSAM, or phenylzine, which is known as Nardil, are early generation antidepressants. And for those of you around my graduating year, you might recall the sketchy farm video of Chateau Tyramine. But essentially, the MAO inhibitors, which are some of the first-generation antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, work by preventing the breakdown of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. This is in contrast to the SSRIs, which are the current gold standard in treating depression and anxiety. So the SSRIs, to recap, uh, they stand for the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, which, as the name implies, they are specific to only serotonin. The older MOA inhibitors prevent the breakdown, again, of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So those older drugs that were, back in the day, first line for antidepressant and anti-anxiety are still used today, more now for bipolar depression specifically, rather than general depression and anxiety, but they can also be used for all forms of depression at the discretion of the doctor prescribing them. So that was a little sidetrack, but MDMA has that MAO inhibitor-like activity. It's a lot more potent and powerful though. 
So the first thing that MDMA does is prevents the reuptake of the monoamines, which again are serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. In addition to preventing the reuptake, which means preventing the reabsorption of that molecule, MDMA also causes the release of serotonin. Essentially, it floods your brain with serotonin. It also causes the release of oxytocin, which is the hormone released to help you bond with loved ones or your baby when you have a baby. It's released after childbirth and during childbirth, and we actually give it to pregnant patients to induce childbirth in certain situations. MDMA also causes the release of dopamine and norepinephrine too. So essentially, your brain gets flooded with all of these molecules, which produce the effects described earlier. Since we're talking about all of these molecules bathing your brain, essentially, let's quickly dip into some side effects while we have the neurochemistry fresh in our minds. So the theoretical risk of MDMA is due to the release of all these compounds in conjunction with taking other medications. So theoretically, if you are already taking an SSRI or an MAO inhibitor, so essentially if you're taking any sort of other antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication, theoretically you run the risk of developing what we call serotonin syndrome, which is essentially serotonin toxicity. So all of that serotonin and the hyperactivity of the serotonin can cause a lot of different things that classify what we call serotonin syndrome. This can mean hyperthermia, which is high temperatures, muscle clonus, which is rhythmic flapping of the muscles in an uncontrolled way, and potentially also cardiac arrhythmias. This is very rare and usually only occurs in certain situations. It's usually from people using multiple antidepressants and not using them correctly or using them in conjunction with other medications that also cause the release of serotonin. So in the hospital, we can treat this with essentially a serotonin antidote, which is called ciproheptadine. We also use other medications to manage the symptoms. So that is the biggest theoretical risk of MDMA. However, these serotonergic events were not found when MDMA is used at appropriate doses during the clinical trials. Prior studies that did show this unfortunate side effect were retrospective studies that looked at MDMA use in recreational settings. So this is important. They were used in recreational settings when A, the purity of the substances are not known, and unfortunately, Far too often, MDMA on the streets is laced with meth, cocaine, fentanyl, or other potentially harmful compounds that can cause cardiac arrhythmias and all of these things that are similar to serotonin syndrome symptoms. We also don't know if those doses that people were taking were extremely high and not the appropriate dose. And we also don't know what other drugs people were using, either antidepressants or other party drugs. So there's a lot of confounding variables that is important to know, but we did not see serotonin syndrome in the clinical trials. This doesn't mean we need to dismiss the risks of serotonin syndrome, but we do need to see what the data is actually showing us. And when used at appropriate doses and without concurrent use of other medications, MDMA has not shown to cause serotonin syndrome. Now, this is hard to control in a non-clinical setting, which does pose a predicament in making the drug legal outside of a purely clinical context, which we can definitely get into later. But besides serotonin syndrome, let's also look at the other potential toxicities that have been studied, and the results are very reassuring to the safety of this molecule. 
This is important to look at because I feel like a lot of anti-drug campaigns show people pictures of your brain on drugs or holes eaten away at your brain after many long years of doing drugs and they just lump all drugs together. But we forget that there are thousands of drugs that doctors prescribe every single day and those aren't given the same scrutiny as these quote-unquote mind-altering or party drugs. So with that being said, let's look at the data. Studies have shown that using MDMA does deplete your serotonin levels for up to two weeks after taking the drug. For this reason, it is recommended to wait at least two weeks or longer between sessions in order to not continuously deplete your brain of serotonin. But what about long-term toxicity? What does the data show us for using MDMA repeatedly for a long period over time? The data is actually also very reassuring. Even at doses three times the recommended dose, and used chronically, there have been no observed deterioration of neurons or other markers of neurotoxicity. This means the drug does not eat away your brain, like those anti-drug campaigns claim. One study also looked at high doses of MDMA, so the dose that they were looking at was 80 milligrams per kilogram twice a day. So what that means, say you weigh 140 pounds, that would be 5,000 milligrams twice a day. This is compared to the 75 to 125 milligram recommendation. So again, 5,000 compared to around 100 milligrams. That is essentially 50 times the recommended amount, twice a day. And even after that, there were no changes seen in brain structure. That amount of MDMA did cause a prolonged depletion of serotonin, which is definitely to be expected. So with all that being said, the drug is safe, when used correctly, and education about the safety and how to use the drug correctly is extremely important. With that, let's jump back to how the release of all those compounds produce the effects the MDMA causes. So when all of those molecules are released, the dynamic interaction on numerous brain networks ends up temporarily altering pathways associated with learning, emotion, and neuroplasticity. Most notably, we have seen decreased activity in the amygdala, the amygdala is the part of your brain that responds to fearful stimuli. It is what causes you to feel fear when you see or experience something that you interpret as fearful. This is essential to understanding how it works to treat PTSD. When this part of your brain gets shut off, you can visit past memories without the fear response. So it doesn't make those memories go away, but it allows you to explore them without the physical feeling of fear. And this is as therapeutic as you may imagine. And it is the reason that many veterans who have daily flashbacks from their PTSD experience a sudden stop of flashbacks altogether after they do an MDMA therapy session. I've read so many accounts of these veterans who, like I said, have daily flashbacks. And after they've done their three MDMA sessions, up to a year later, they have not had a single flashback. That is astonishing. So this mechanism of action is also what is thought to produce the subjective effects of feeling closer to others or increased sociability. This is because your fear response, which also includes any sort of fear of judgment of others, gets shut off. There is a beautiful book called The Gateway of the Heart, Accounts of Experiences with MDMA and Other Empathogenic Substances that is compiled and edited by Sophia Adamson. 
I'll link to the full book, but I would love to read an excerpt from the book that I feel like really portrays the beauty of what MDMA can do for people. So this excerpt is the account of a 35-year-old former school teacher and ex-nun. I'm just going to read it to you guys. Perhaps the most obvious feeling for me at the beginning and throughout the session was the incredible sense of peace and release from the bondages that I felt. My body was no longer a trap, a prison, but instead became like a kaleidoscope, a mingling of different energies. I felt myself being several eyes in a very strange way. Sometimes I felt myself very wise. Sometimes I was the adult me, not so wise. And sometimes I was a child. I felt a deep friendship with the guide, as if I had known him for a long time. Certain other relationships came up, and I saw them as equally lovable. I was able to detach from intense attachments that bring pain, and was able to love gently and freely, a truly wonderful gift to me. I found myself thinking of God the Father, and felt that I was resting in the palm of his hands, just as Isaiah says in the Bible. I was being rocked in a large hand with darkness as universe all around me. It was incredibly soothing and loving. When the guide put on certain music, I felt romantic instead of being with God the Father. I was dancing with a very handsome man whom I didn't know. It was very peaceful, not passionate, very graceful and free. Then I was confused and it became a figure of Jesus. I was amazed. I told the guide that Jesus was my brother whom I loved very deeply. The guide suggested that Jesus could also be my lover, and yes, I have felt that, though a bit guiltily. But love like that with a man is what I have sought. Passion and gentleness together. Peace. In my life, both aspects have been separate. A man is either passionate or gentle, and I love both, but they are separate. I knew instantly what my life's purpose was, to continue to seek the heart and the mind of union to continue to remember the essence within, which was so peaceful, in spite of worldly activities. Adam, which again at that time was MDMA, revealed a new potential, which I knew was there, but was too afraid to experience alone. As far as my studies, I realized they were important, but they only mattered in the world. I saw that I was worrying too much about the other's opinions of my work, I realize that the intellectual work has been a saving grace for me. I truly love the work of the mind, and I have always been an avid reader, but now I can put it in perspective. I have been putting too much energy in the concepts and theories that may change in 10 years, where the elemental principles of love, truth, self-realization, etc. always remain the same. Now I can, with the help of Adam, tap into the deeper resources, which were always my goal. I'm still a bit afraid of the future and going back, quote-unquote, into the world, but after the session, I felt the inner connection will guide me through and I will find my place. The place will definitely be working directly with love energies. And she goes on to explain a whole lot more and dives deeper into her controlled trip, so I definitely recommend if you liked that little excerpt. The whole book really is beautiful if you want to hear more accounts like hers. So that's how the drug works. Now let's look at the current data and what it is showing us for what MDMA can treat. We already touched on this a little bit, but PTSD is the number one disorder. After the latest clinical trials that have been published, 
MDMA is well on its way to be FDA-approved to treat PTSD as early as the beginning of 2023. First, let's break down what PTSD is. PTSD stands for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. So it is a psychiatric disorder characterized by a stress response following any sort of traumatic event. The one we hear about most often is war, but traumatic events leading to PTSD can be pretty much anything, including sexual abuse or any other sort of psychological trauma. This stress response can cause a wide array of detrimental symptoms that really interfere with people's lives and happiness. The most well-known side effect are flashbacks, where people experience the traumatic event in their head from any sort of slight trigger. This can cause panic and distress in what other people view as a very neutral environment. But for that person experiencing the flashback, they feel that full fear response again as if it were real and happening in real time. Other symptoms of PTSD include detachment from loved ones, career, or other activities that used to be enjoyable to them. This obviously leads to a whole other slew of problems, including a deep depression and, very often, suicidality. Currently, the first-line pharmaceutical treatment for PTSD are the SSRIs, which we've definitely talked about in this episode and prior ones. So these drugs, in conjunction with therapy, are what we use to treat PTSD with currently. And it does work for some people, but 40-60% to of people who try this don't get any relief at all. MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been pioneering the way for MDMA. They have done a lot of research on this compound and have recently published a multi-study, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized phase 3 clinical trial with astonishing results. Now, that was a lot of words, but essentially for people who are not in research, All of those words put together essentially give you the gold standard of what trials should be in order to get a drug on the market. So they would give people these doses of MDMA via a pill and do therapy sessions with them. And like we talked about earlier, this allows people to access painful memories without that fear response. And their studies have shown that 67% of participants no longer even meet the criteria for PTSD after three sessions of MDMA-assisted therapy. This is huge. So not only did it cause a significant reduction in symptoms for pretty much almost all of the participants, but almost 70% had a resolution of their PTSD completely. And this is after only three therapy sessions. This is amazing. Now, while we are on this subject, I do need to bring up a shadow side to this sort of work. Unfortunately, an account has been released revealing essentially sexual assault during one of these therapy sessions. The video footage of one of these therapy sessions has been released and is live, and the story is fully explored on New York Magazine's podcast Cover Story during their season called Power Trip. So, during one of these therapy sessions, a psychiatrist and an unlicensed therapist essentially sexually assault a patient who was suffering PTSD from a prior sexual assault. The footage is very disturbing, and these two quote-unquote therapists even ask her to spread her legs and they pin her down while she's reliving her sexual assault memory. They don't rape her per se, but they do so many things that are terrible and unethical and should never happen. So let me be clear that this is not how these therapy sessions should go. 
You should not force a person to relive that memory and pin them down and tell them that it's okay to be assaulted. That is not how these therapy sessions should go. The point is to relive that memory and talk through it and find an acceptance and love to yourself, not to be okay with being assaulted. So I had to bring it up because unfortunately that did happen to that person and I feel for them so deeply and it just makes me so mad that people would think that you can do a therapy session like that, essentially assault a person again after they're reliving their sexual assault memory and that is not how it should go. So with that, we can't just pretend that these treatments don't have a potential for abuse. But it's important to know it's not the MDMA that causes the abuse. The blame lies in these therapists who clearly sexually assaulted a woman during her most vulnerable time. This is terrible, and we have to do more to prevent this from ever happening again. And I think as a whole, the psychedelic community needs to bring up these issues and address them head on because these molecules are very powerful and can lead to dangerous situations like the one just described. They can be profound and heal so many people, but they do have a potential to have a deep shadow side and we need to work to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. So I hate to end it on such a dark note, but I do think that this is important to talk about and bring up and will spark future conversations about what we can do to still have this molecule available that has healed so many people from PTSD, but we need to make strong efforts to prevent this from ever happening to anyone else ever again. If you have any ideas or if you want to join the conversation, send me an email, comment, and let's get the conversation going. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and share so we can get the conversation started about integrative and psychedelic medicine. Let's destigmatize it and have open-minded conversations so we can fully explore what this could mean in the world. Oh, 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 oh,